0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, One Body, Many Parts, It's a Gift. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 27, 2013. During my four years as a visiting professor at Moscow State University, back in 1991 to 95. Our family attended the Moscow Protestant Chaplaincy. The MPC was founded in 1962 by the National Council of Churches to minister to the American embassy community in Moscow. In fact, the church was located on the embassy grounds, and the pastor received State Department housing. For 30 years, the MPC was a cozy little community with an awkward relationship. Some people objected to a church in an embassy. Security concerns made it difficult to bring outsiders into the embassy for worship. And so a church called to be radically inclusive became very insular. But then two things happened. After a fire at the embassy in 1990, The government kicked the church out. They needed every square inch of space during repairs. So the MBC found its own space in place in central Moscow. And then on December 24th, 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev resigned and the Soviet Union vanished. In the wake of the collapse, the whole world poured into Moscow. No longer isolated in and restricted by the embassy, the MBC grew to about 200 people from 30 nations and 20 denominations. Half the church was composed of refugees and African university students who were stranded after their Soviet scholarships evaporated. The other half of the church included business executives, NGO people, personnel from embassies around the world, missionaries, and a few Russians. The bureau chiefs from NBC and CBS were also regulars, so much for the secular media. One Sunday, our pastor visited the British Anglican Church. He returned with a tongue-in-cheek report. I have good news and bad news, he said, The good news is that everyone at St. Andrews is white. The bad news is that everyone at St. Andrews is white. There was an important point to his jest. It naturally felt good to be among people like yourself. But he also missed the radical diversity of the Moscow Protestant chaplaincy. (coughs) <coughs> in seminary 30 years ago, we studied what was called the Homogeneous Unit Principle, articulated by the missiologist Donald McGavern of Fuller Seminary. If you expect people to convert in churches to grow, said McGavern, you must appeal to a common denominator around which they can gather. Ethnicity, language, level of education, and so on. And, in fact, homogeneity is what we mainly see when we look at churches. Black Pentecostals enjoy their lively worship. Episcopalians prefer their quiet formality. Some people like the organ. Others like praise bands. And never the twain shall meet. For McGavern, homogeneity is good and necessary. But for H. Richard Niebuhr of Yale, homogeneity signaled failure. His book back in 1929, The Social Sources of Denominationalism, there Niebuhr said that denominations formed not so much around theological distinctives, but because of shared sociological factors, race, ethnicity, economic status, and so on. McGavern saw this as a reasonable concession to human nature. Birds of a feather flock together. But Niebuhr said it demonstrated that the church was more like a thermometer than a thermostat. Instead of transforming society, the church merely reflected it and conformed to culture. A cynic might say that Sunday at 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour in America. With few exceptions, society prizes conformity and punishes differences. The Japanese have a proverb for this, the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. And none of us are immune from these pressures, but we can choose how we respond to them. Last week I read Jonathan Schwartz's memoir, the title called Oddly Normal. It tells how his family struggled to help their son Joseph accept that he's gay. The book is a powerful reminder of how hard it is to be different. Joseph was not only gay, he was also extremely smart, physically clumsy, and socially awkward. He needed help from psychological, (coughs) occupational, and speech therapists. After conflicting advice, his parents decided that Joseph fit a diagnosis called PDD-NOS, Pervasive Developmental Disorder, Not Otherwise Specified. And of course, kids can be cruel every family experience is different. School bureaucracies can be complicated. Scientific research is often inconclusive. Experts disagree about diagnoses and treatments. As Joseph became increasingly isolated, both socially and emotionally, he internalized the rejection he experienced because of his differences. He edited and then rejected his different self by attempting suicide at the end of the seventh grade. In the epistle this week, Paul calls us to a better way of dealing with our differences. He compares the church to the human body. Although it's made up of many parts, it forms one body. And so it is with us. Despite our obvious and many differences, God calls us to a unity that's not bland uniformity and to a diversity without division. To three different churches, Paul writes, there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, Scythian, slave or free, male or female, but Christ is all and is in all. Paul draws some practical conclusions about our unity in diversity. I need you, and you need me. He writes, the eye cannot say to the hands, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Paul subverts our normal human tendencies. He says, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Despite our differences, we should have what Paul calls equal concern for each other. Schwartz tells how he was helped by a gay friend who related his own story about a college experience. One day, Brian was talking about a writing project with his professor, Betty Sue Flowers, and happened to mention to Flowers that he was gay. He was shocked by her response. It's a gift, said Flowers. Brian continues, I would have never thought of that as a possible reply, yet I immediately knew exactly what she meant. Because I was different, I would see things differently than everyone else. And that would be valuable to me in ways that I would only discover over time. I don't think it's too much to say that her words changed how I looked at my life. The greatest gift you can give to the church and the world is to be yourself. Nobody else can do that. And reciprocally, to extend the same grace to others. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you. Romans 15, verse 7. <coughs> For a book this week, I review a title called Fire in the Ashes, 25 Years Among the Poorest Children in America. The author is Jonathan Kozol, New York, Crown, 354 pages. For the last 50 years, the activist writer Jonathan Kozol has worked with the poorest children in America. And in a dozen books, he's told their stories. His first book, Death at an Early Age, won the National Book Award. His newest book tells the stories of children he followed from the South Bronx neighborhood of Mott Haven, the poorest congressional district in the nation, especially through the programs run by the Reverend Martha Overall of St. Anne's Episcopal Church. He met most of these kids beginning in 1985, and now it's been 25 years. What has come of them? This book is the response. In Kozel's view, our country tolerates nothing less than educational apartheid. One social worker described the Martinique Hotel, where many of Kozel's children grew up, as New York City's midtown death camp for the spirits of poor children. When he asked if he was offended by this comment since he was a Jew, Kozel said that he thought it was a just comparison. These children live in rat-infested places that are run by criminal landlords. Some places don't even have running water. These people know chronic hunger. Their schools are overcrowded, often have no textbooks, have higher teacher turnover, and graduation rates of about 25%. They must interact with erratic and dysfunctional government agencies that have complex rules. As you would expect for any human being who grew up in such conditions, these families struggle with poor health, broken wills, bad decision-making skills, feelings of helplessness, and rampant criminality. Kozl's storytelling cuts through the rhetoric and ideology to introduce us to his kids and their environment. Nor does he romanticize. There are plenty of kids sent to prison, suicide, evictions, heroin overdose, and family violence. Still, while he describes how and why these children are so vulnerable, there's no patronizing pity. He also celebrates their nearly indestructible resilience against all odds. Alice, for example, absolutely refused to succumb to the passivity of victimhood. Leonardo, Pineapple, and Jeremy all went to college. A blurb on the back of the cover by Ellie Wiesel gets it right. Wiesel says, What Kozel says must be heard. His outcry must shake our nation out of its guilty indifference. Jonathan Kozel Fire in the Ashes For film this week, I review Life of Pi, 2012. Some people said that the best-selling novel by Jan Martel was unfilmable but director David Aang has proved them wrong. You could watch this film for the pure enjoyment of its super sophisticated animation, which some have compared to that in Avatar. The adventure story is also a winner. A young boy named Pai Patel becomes a lone castaway after the tanker his family was sailing went down in a storm. For 227 days, he's stuck in a lifeboat with a manic hyena, a zebra, an orangutan, and a ferocious Bengal tiger named Robert Parker. In the end, of course, he's saved, but how and why? The Japanese insurance adjusters don't believe his fantastical explanation, so he gives them a much more banal version. This is a movie with an overt moral about the stories we tell to understand reality. Contrary to his father's wishes, from his earliest years as a little boy, Pi was always deeply religious. And so he's clear in his own mind about the one who watched over him while he was adrift in the ocean. Life of Pi For poetry this week, we posted a poem by Joshua Sylvester. Joshua Sylvester lived from 1563 to 1618. The poem is called The Father. Alpha and Omega, God alone. Eli, my God, the Holy One. Whose power is omnipotence. Whose wisdom is omniscience. Whose being is all-sovereign bliss, whose work perfection's fullness is. Under all things, not undercast, over all things, not overplaced. Within all things, not there included. Without all things, not there excluded. Above all, over all things reigning. Beneath all, all things I sustaining. Without all, all-continuing soul. Within all, filling full the whole. Within all, nowhere comprehended. Without all, nowhere more extended. Under, by nothing over Over, by nothing under-propped. Unmoved thou movest the world about. Unplaced within it. Or without. Unchanged, timeless, time thou changest. The unstable, thou still stable rangest. No outward force, nor inward fate can thy dread essence alterate. Today, tomorrow, yesterday, with thee are one an in instant, a A undivided ended never, today with thee endures forever. Thou, Father, madest this mighty ball of nothing thou createst all, after the idea of thy mind conferring form to every kind. Thou wert, thou art, thou wilt be ever, and thine elect rejectest never. Joshua Sylvester, the Father. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January twenty 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.